good to the book of Luke. Um, we are um, in a summer series on the miracles of Jesus. And a little context as we drop down here into this particular gospel. Uh, Luke chapter 7 is a place where Jesus is just beginning his second year of public ministry. He's just closed out the first year with what some people call the Sermon on the Plain in Luke. It's kind of roughly like or parallel to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. And he's just returned to, to Capernaum, which is a small town in the region of Galilee and is often thought to be the if you will, the, the place that is Jesus' base of operations. He's always uh, often going back to Capernaum. So here now the reading of God's word, Luke chapter 7, uh, page 1065, if you're using the Blue Bibles, Luke 7, we're looking at just the first 10 verses. Here now the reading of God's word. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And he is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent his friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, do not presume to come, I do not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for a moment. Holy Spirit, it is your task, it is your marvelous work as we hold up Christ to point us to the saving work of Jesus and to place him before our eyes as our only hope in this life. So give us eyes to see, Holy Spirit, eyes that grow dim and even blind, so that today and later tonight and throughout the week and in all our lives, we would trust Jesus and we would cling only to him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this story, this miracle that we see here, answers three key questions that people have consistently had, both for Christianity and for Jesus. Uh, Three challenges that even today people have for Christianity and for Jesus Christ. And the challenges are, I cannot be saved, I cannot be healed, and I cannot believe. This miracle uh, challenges all of those. I cannot be saved, I cannot be healed, I cannot believe. So uh, let's start first with I cannot be saved. Some people say that when they're confronted with Jesus or with Christianity. Um, let me start by asking all of you here, if you had the power to heal somebody, who would you heal? 
You have the power to heal somebody. Who would you heal? Uh, some of you might say a great person, maybe a great inventor or a great scientist, uh, uh, maybe a great musician, someone that you've always loved, but you've heard that he or she was sick. Uh, maybe a great political leader if he or she had brought peace to a place and you just couldn't imagine the nation uh, surviving without this person's leadership. Others of us, I think, could think of a family member or someone who was very, very young, child maybe, who was gravely sick and should have their whole life ahead of them and it doesn't appear that they will. Well, Jesus often healed people that we would not expect. Healed people we would not expect. The first person he healed was a leper, somebody who was an outcast, somebody who was a nobody. That's how we know them. They're a leper. This healing is surprising too, because the person that Jesus helps here in this miracle is a Roman centurion. He heals the servant, who he's never met, of a Roman centurion that he's never met. Now, you need to know something about centurions and why this is rather unusual. Because centurions were the hand of the Roman oppressor. Uh, Centurions oversaw all of the taxing that happened in a given area. They were like the law enforcement of the IRS in a given region. Uh, They were the -the on-the-ground rule of the empire. They were, uh, their their reputation was not all that good. They were known to be uh, defilers of the land of Israel, and they were also known for humiliating individual Israelites. One of the main uh, income streams for the empire were local tax stations that were positioned on the road in and out of certain towns. Capernaum was one of them. And you'd have to stop at a booth and pay as you went in and out of a town. The centurion made sure that the toll roads, which were again an, an income stream, were well managed. And if you just didn't feel like paying the toll that day, well, he was a centurion. Sent meaning where we get the word century. He had a garrison there at the toll road of at least a hundred men to make sure that if you didn't feel like paying the toll, you were going to pay the toll anyway. So the, the, the immediate emotion of an Israelite for a centurion was typically suspicion and to stay as far away as you possibly could. But this centurion was different. This man was different. And the big difference is grace. This man could see grace. He believes that Jesus can heal his servant by his sovereign grace. Don't miss the contrast here because it's critical. The question here is if healing, and yes, by healing, we're also ultimately saying uh, salvation. The question here is if healing or salvation... Is it by grace or is it by works? Is it by grace or is it by works? The religious leaders that are sent by the centurion to Jesus, they give a justification for why the centurion's servant should be healed. And it's by merit. It's by works. The case that they make for the, the, that the one for whom 
uh, Jesus should do this healing is that he's deserving. They go out to Jesus and ask Jesus to heal the man's servant because he's their patron. Not because they believe in Jesus, not because they, the religious leaders, believe that he uh, can and just does heal people. They believe that he does, that this centurion deserves this. Their words reveal their legalism. In verse 4, the religious leaders say, he is worthy to have you do this. He loves our nation. He built our synagogue. A synagogue, by the way, that Jesus had worshipped in earlier in Luke's gospel. He deserves this. Don't miss what the religious leaders are really saying. They don't have faith in Jesus because they do have faith in their own moral goodness, their own moral performance. They believe that you can merit divine power in your life. In other words, heal this man's servant because he's like us. He's like us. The centurion merits to have you heal his servant just like we would just like we do. He is, they're saying, just as worthy as we are. Now, Jesus' own doctrine of salvation is salvation by grace. By grace. That's the very deepest healing and restoration that all of us need. It's a healing, a salvation by his works, by Jesus' deeds. That's how the Bible answers that challenge. That's how the Bible answers this question. You may think, I'm not good enough to be a Christian. Well, this doctrine says you're definitely not good enough. Some of you might say, I am good enough to be a Christian. And this miracle says you are not. It answers the question with a far more inclusive question. The far more inclusive question for this is, is anyone worthy to be saved? Is anyone worthy to be saved? Stick your finger here in Luke 7. Turn with me, uh, if you went to Romans 3, if you're using the Blue Bibles, uh, that would be page 1197, uh, to Romans chapter 3. Now, think about this. Think about this. Is your mother worthy of Christ's kindness. I see people looking at their mothers. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, how about this one? Uh, is your grandson worthy of the kindness of Jesus Christ? The answer the Bible gives is actually a resounding no. <laughs> a resounding no. It's because God in Christ simply is that holy. That's the issue. It's not about your grandson. It's not about your mother. It's about, it's about God. He simply is that holy. But that's not all. Look at Romans 3, verse 20. And this is where Paul specifically addresses whether someone can be worthy, if they are a sinner, through their corresponding deeds or other things that they do that make them worthwhile. Uh, whether somebody can be righteous before God, for instance, through their law-keeping or their parentage, or anything else that you can trust in about yourself to be worthy before God. It can be your culture. It can be your language. It can be your race. It can be the amount of money you have in your bank. It could be your politics. Whatever it might be that you might think makes me worthy before God. Romans 3 challenges this. Look at this. Verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, 
since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, so many people that think, think that through the law, through doing of the law, comes righteousness for me. If I do the law, I become righteousness. And Paul says that's not how the law works. Yeah, if you really could do the law, perhaps a man could become righteous. Maybe one man could do that. But for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. That's what the law produces, an awareness. It's the holiness of God. It's the white hot light of God on your, on your heart. And when that, when that comes upon your heart, you start to see things that maybe you didn't see before. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. So it's, it's, it's not just your grandma. It's not just your grandson. There is no person ever who can make the claim, I'm worthy. I'm worthy. I deserve God's favor. No one, nowhere, no how. Paul goes on in verse 24 to say that our hope is to be justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It is by grace that you have been saved, brothers and sisters, through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, just as there are people that say, I am good enough to be a Christian, there are those out there who say, I'm simply not good enough to be a Christian. Well, this is, <laughs> the grace is for you too. How do we know it is by grace that Jesus heals or saves anyone? Look at how, look at how Jesus reacts to the request that the Jewish uh, rulers, the Jewish, the word there is actually presbyters, the elders of the synagogue, look uh, at, at, at the answer he gives to them, or doesn't, right? He doesn't say, why didn't you come earlier? This guy is so near death. Or um, why doesn't he say, I will not help this Roman oppressor of God's people? He doesn't say, because you elders have bad theology, because, because you believe in works righteousness, I won't have anything to do with you or with your centurion. No, he just goes. He just goes. He goes for actually no given reason. Because it's by grace. Because it's by grace alone. You think you can't be saved? You think you can't be saved precisely because you know you're not good? Well, you were very close to the truth. You're very close to the truth. You're right. Thank God, because God saves in Christ by grace alone. That's the first challenge, by grace alone. Second challenge, I cannot be healed. In other words, I cannot be healed because I just don't believe. Uh, maybe you're somebody who just doesn't believe in God. Maybe you're an atheist. I don't believe anything other people do. I don't. So these things can't happen to me. Second challenge. I want to give you three responses to that idea that I simply can't, can't be healed. I can't be saved. Can't have God mother because I just don't believe. Three responses. Number one, you do believe. Number two, you often believe in things that have less reason or warrant than Christianity does. 
And number three, there is only one who is worthy of the belief that you actually do have. Right? Those are the three responses. First, you do believe. You're a believer of sorts. Number two, you often believe in things that are, are have less warrant to them than Christianity does. And number three, there's only one who actually is worry, worthy of the belief that you have. So response one, you need to know that the Bible presupposes that you are a believer. Now, by that I mean you believe in something. You believe in something. You're not as neutral, you see, as you think you are. Now, you may not feel that way at this moment. I'm just telling you what the Bible says about you. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's for us to wrestle with God's word here. You're not as neutral as you think you are. The Bible claims that at the most basic, simple, foundational level, everyone does believe in something, even, even something unseen, for example, I have to come up with something as foundational and sort of popular and as basic as most people think. You believe, for instance, that you and most people you know are basically good. You believe that you yourself and most people that you know are basically good. You're sure of it. You almost never question it. You can't see it. You can't know it for sure. You just feel it. And maybe you work hard to counterbalance that something that maybe you think that you did wrong or that occasionally when you realize you've not been so nice to others, you try to compensate for it. But otherwise, you really are nice. That's what you believe. But think with me for a moment. Nice compared to what? Nice compared to what? Nice based on whose standard? You see where I'm going? You have a standard for what's nice, and according to that standard, you're just there, and you don't question it. You know, in my own life as a non-Christian, if someone asked me, you know, if there is a God, if there is a God, without faith in Jesus Christ, why would he find you acceptable? And my answer was, I don't know, I think I'm a good person. That was always my, my, my answer. But again, compared to who? Now, for me, I have to tell you, uh, my, my, compared to, for me, it was always uh, Charles Manson. <laughs> I thought I could step over that line. I mean, you know, some of you, are, you don't know who Charles Manson is. Uh, but but, but um, you know, I, I, I wanted a standard over which I could step. It was pretty clear, you see. <clears throat> but, but there were always people who were still nicer to me. What if the standard, the actual standard, was somewhere between me and the nicer people that I knew? See, I needed a goal line. I needed a standard. I needed assurance that I was good and I believed, you see? And, 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 and my belief was basically in me, in my relative goodness. And I just, sometimes I get a little shaken up did something that I ought not to have done and I sort of wondered, well, what am I going to do? How am I going to be able to compensate for this? Is the line actually moved? Have I fallen behind the line? How do I crawl myself up to where I need to be? What is my standard? Where can I get the standard? Here's a first principle. Here's a first principle. You can never disbelieve in God without believing at that same moment just as deeply and fundamentally in something else. Let me say that again. First principle, you can never disbelieve in God without believing at the same time just as deeply, just as fundamentally in something else. 
If you don't believe in God or you don't believe in Jesus, it's not because you don't believe. It's not because you don't have faith. It means you have something just as deep, just as fundamental, a faith in something else. But the Bible says you're not neutral. You're not neutral. Second response, second response. You often believe, we have a tendency to believe often in things that have less reason or less warrant than Christianity. Last year, my daughter was reading Sheldon Van Auken's famous book, A Severe Mercy. It's a book I actually can recommend, and I I can't get into the whole book here, but if you love love stories, this book is for you. Um, And in the book, Van, he goes by a shortening of his last name, Van, he wants to believe. And he wants to believe because of his love for a woman. He wants to believe like she does to make their relationship, you see, even closer than it is. And he says, look, if I'm going to stake my whole life on the risen Lord Jesus Christ, I don't want there to be a gap, you see, between what is possible and the proven. I don't want there to be any gap there. I want the proven. I don't want to, I don't want to sort of say, well, I believe in something that is likely or possible. I want it proven for me. So he says, you know, what I want is the letters, letters of fire across the sky that say Jesus is risen. And if God does that for me, I'll believe. So there'll be no gap between what is possible. I've been told the gospel. I've been told this is possible that a man rose from the dead and etc. and was proven. But as he goes on in his wrestling, he realizes there's another gap that he has. He says at one point, I couldn't prove Jesus was God, but by God, I couldn't prove that he wasn't. I realized I could not reject Jesus without a great step of faith, but then I began to realize I, I realized that I could not go ahead into faith and believe without a great step of faith. There was only one possible thing to do. Once I'd seen that I had a gap behind me where I couldn't prove this wasn't true, as much as I had a gap in front of me where I couldn't prove to myself that it was, all I had was to step forward to Christ. In other words, the step of faith got a whole lot smaller. It first faded to almost nothing, and then there was no real gap difference in his faiths, if you will. And finally, unbelief was the only gap because he first saw, I'm always believing in something. And then he saw that there was more impossibility and in acting like uh, things like goodness and things like love for this particular woman were mere accidents if he really was only and merely evolved as a bag of chemistry or mere matter in motion, then there wasn't the reality that goodness and love were actually something real and that he was believing that they were real all the time that he believed that there was no realness to the realness of the love that he had for the woman. And then he realized he was on remarkably shaky ground. You see, there really are standards for what is right, true, good, and beautiful. Everyone in this room, doesn't matter if you're a follower of Jesus or you're not, believes that there are standards for that. But where do they come from? Where do you get them? You see the point? You may think you can't believe. You may think you don't have enough evidence or faith to believe, but you're always faithing in something. 
They're always believing in something. For years, Van said, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Jesus. I wish I had faith, but I just don't. But then he realized how much his faith, faith it took not to believe. But either way, he was basing his destiny on something that he couldn't prove. Now look at the text. The religious leaders that come to get Jesus, they believe, but they don't believe in Jesus. They believe, but they believe in themselves. They believe in their works. They believe in the works of man. But ironically, it is a Gentile centurion who believes in Jesus. He believes that Jesus works healing, that Jesus can save his servant. He believes that Jesus can save you. Which takes us to the third response. There's only one worthy of faith. When it comes to centurions, um, they, they were of middle rank. They were of middle rank. They were, you might say they were stuck in the middle. They, relatively speaking to our military, they, they were captains. And we forget that Rome, they, that, 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 um, that those higher than them were actually nobility, that the Roman Empire was a tight amalgamation of military and political leadership, so that those above them were nobility and so they were wealthy and they were, they, they were connected people, those above them. And those who were lower, the, the normal sort of rank and file soldier, the, the centurions couldn't actually mix with either group. They couldn't fraternize with either group. They couldn't fraternize with those below them because they had to order them around. You can't be sometimes best friends with people that you're going to have to order into battle and say, you know, you might have to die and I need you to go out today and maybe you're going to die today. But he couldn't fraternize with the nobility either because he wasn't. Now, the centurion's rank had privileges, but it also had restrictions to it too. If you held the job for 20 years, you might retire with honor and you'd be quite wealthy. But on the other hand, you weren't allowed to get married. If a centurion had a kept woman, she was almost always a concubine. And if together you had a child, the child wasn't legally yours. And you couldn't really be seen by too many people with uh, having your concubine and your child over to the house because, in a sense, you've dedicated your life to the empire. You've dedicated your life to Caesar. So you can't fraternize with the soldiers below. You can't fraternize with those above you. You can't fraternize with anybody else. So the closest person in a centurion's life is their servant, is their servant. So here he is, and likely the person who actually knows him the best in the world, his servant, is dying. If we were to look over at the parallel account of this miracle over in Matthew, we'd see that the servant is paralyzed. He is in great pain, horrible combination, chronic pain, but you just can't move in your pain. But the centurion's dilemma for the one person that he can and wants to save is this. Verse 3, it tells us there that the centurion has heard about Jesus and he believes that Jesus is his only hope, but how is he going to convince a Jewish rabbi to come into a Gentile's house? You see, when the centurion says, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, he is saying, yes, I believe that I'm not as great as you are. 
But more than that, as a God-fearer who knows the Jewish religion, he's, 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 he's a, remember we've been studying in Acts, he's one of those God-fearers. He's helped to build the synagogue for the local Jewish population. He knows something about the message of Judaism. It's purity, it's holiness, it's emphasis on honesty and justice. He knows that he's asking Jesus, a rabbi, to give something up. For a Jew to enter the house of a Gentile centurion would make make Jesus defiled. For Jesus to enter a Gentile centurion's house would be to make him ritually unclean. It would mean that Jesus would be to, to take on shame to do that. So he says, you don't have to come here. And because you are greater, I did not presume to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. And that phrase, say the word, is so important. This is where you see the man's faith. Remember, Jesus has just recently healed a leper. He healed that leper with a touch. He touched an unclean man. But while he healed the man with a touch, he did not heal him by a touch. No, he healed the man through a touch. See, Jesus doesn't, didn't have to touch the leper. The touching of the leper was for the leper's sake, not for his own. His word is where his power is. His word has power. He acts through his word. And this is where Jesus hears this man's faith. He hears the centurion saying, when I speak a word to my soldiers, it happens. They do because they're under my authority. I'm under your authority so that when you say sickness and death go, it will go. Now you might ask yourself, how did the centurion know this? He's not even seen Jesus, it doesn't seem before. He's heard about him. That's all we're told in the text. He's heard about him. Never seen him. Now the centurion might have heard about Jesus' miracles elsewhere. Maybe he heard about the wedding of Cana. Maybe he heard about the healing of the leper. But I think, it's, I think there's more to it than that. In Rome, there was a chain of authority. Remember, the emperor was virtually a god He had the authority of the gods. When he spoke, his authority got passed down through the system of Roman rule so that when the centurion spoke, he was speaking for and as the emperor in that moment. You see that word under in verses 6 and 8? It's there three times. There's a chain here. Under my roof, under my authority, under their authority, you see? So that likewise, this man expects that when Jesus speaks for God. He is speaking as God. But in that moment, it seems he knows Jesus is God. He calls him, verse 6, kurios. He calls him Lord. To call him Lord is to acknowledge him as master and profess obedience to his commandments. But more than that, he acknowledges his sovereign rule. Do you see that? Notice that he recognizes that Jesus has the sovereign power to just will something into creation. All you have to do is say it. It'll happen. It just will. He sees that that he's sending a message to the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. He knows he's messaging the one who called creation into being. 
Now we have to move on to our last challenge, but let me ask you this. This centurion never saw Jesus, never laid eyes on him. He only, verse 3, heard about Jesus. And likewise, you have never laid eyes maybe on the risen Lord. But the word you have heard. But the word you have heard. The word has told you who he is. The word has told you that he sits at the right hand of the Father to intercede for, for you. Do you cling by faith to the word that comes by hearing? Do you do that? Have you been challenged by that? Just like the soldier did. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing. You have heard. If you've heard him today, you have. Will you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Because it's by faith, not in you, but in him for you, his sovereign power. That's what saves. Last challenge. Last challenge. I cannot believe cannot believe. So far, the answers have been by grace alone and then by faith alone. Well, this answer, of course, is by Christ alone. Now, here's what we mean. We said already that everyone believes. Everyone has faith in something, that there is the sense that faith is actually completely natural to human beings. But as Tim Keller says, you need something quite often to redirect this faith to its rightful object. All I want to say about that is if you're feeling a little you're feeling a little off today feeling a little shaky today by these challenges and how Jesus challenges back that's a good thing that's a good thing sometimes everything you hope in actually has to fall apart or fall down before you trust what is real and what is right and what is true. You have faith, but you need supernatural help to redirect you to Jesus. The Spirit's help to redirect you to Jesus. Think about the centurion for just one more moment. Think about him. He has it culturally, in Capernaum, he has it all. He is the most powerful man in this particular city. First, he has great authority. He commanded, remember, a garrison of 100 men. Second, he had great power. He was part of an occupying force. Uh, no one else was allowed to have weaponry or force. Only his men could have that force. So he had that power over every person he saw in the region. That would have included the religious leaders of the synagogue. That would have included Jesus in his eyes. Third, he had the favor of those elders. It's not easy to receive praise without it going to your head. He had their praise as well. He had all of these advantages. And yet, did you notice? The centurion doesn't call for Jesus until there's a problem in his life. The centurion doesn't call for Jesus until there is a big problem in his life until someone he cares about is about to die. If you don't know Jesus and you're feeling shaky today, I know it's not a good feeling, but it may be one of the best things to ever happen to you. It may be. Because typically you don't send for Jesus. You don't ask the big questions. You don't ask, why am I here? What is my life about? Why doesn't anyone care about me? What is the meaning of life? Until something goes wrong. You know this. 
In, uh, in uh, C.S. Lewis's famous uh, fictional book, The Screwtape Letters, um, it's this wonderful book where there's a senior devil and he's trying to train a junior devil on how to tempt human beings. That's the conceit of the book. And there's one letter in which Screwtape, it's the name of the senior devil, is writing to his, uh, his young uh, devil friend and he says, look, if you have a client, <laughs> okay, that's, that's y'all. If you have a client who is starting to think that maybe there is a God, maybe there is a Jesus, maybe these things are true, or that maybe the Bible is right, for goodness sake, don't argue with them. Now that seems kind of counterintuitive. Wouldn't you think that every time somebody thought the Bible was true, the devil would be right there to say, no, it's not. Because screw tape is saying, if you give them a problem, if you rock their world, they're going to start asking the big questions. Let them believe the Bible's true. Let them believe that they're a nice person, they believe in Jesus, and they're a Christian, and let them do it. In other words, don't get their reasoning going. Don't get them to ask those big questions. Keep them busy in life. Because the only time you ever begin to ask the big questions, the only time you ever begin to, to, to start uh, faith and, and, and move toward Christ is when your life gets interrupted with something bad. It's almost always the way. Now, I've noticed this, that when this happens, there are people who doubt it. For those of us who've gone through a rocky time of our lives and we come to faith at a, uh, you know, a certain time of our life, you know, some of us maybe it was in the hospital. Uh, some, I, I know people came to faith in prison. Um, after some kind of tragedy, there are people that think that that kind of faith is inauthentic. Now, your, your, your life just got so rocky that you had to hold on to something uh, strong, and so you were just a weak person. So you you you, you reached out for this to, for your imaginary friend Jesus, but that's not for me. I want to tell you, I know so many people. You do too, where their lives are pretty good. And in this country, we all have relative freedom, relative individual power in this culture. And despite all the talk about who's above other people in this culture at this moment and intersectionality and all the sorts of conversations, we all in this country have so much more wealth, so much more personal autonomy uh, compared to the rest of the world. And yet some, the same people who, 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 who have it so good, they have this vague sense of emptiness. I know so, pe- so many people have it, seem to have it so good, and yet they're so empty. We have lost people in the last couple of weeks. Kate Spade, I used to go by her store in New York City all the time. She sold her company for $33 million, and she ended her life a couple of weeks ago. Anthony Bourdain, apparently his net worth was $17 million. I would love to have $17 million. But you know what? It's apparently not enough. It's not enough. You can have everything this world has. You can be the Roman centurion. You can own the town. It's not enough. Where do you go when that happens to you? The answer is, we'll close with this, in what Jesus marvels at over here in verse 9. Do you know there are only two times in the entire Bible where the Lord Jesus Christ, God, marvels? 
uh, where he is said to be amazed. Now, the first time is back in Mark 6. You don't have to, to, to turn there. But it was when Jesus was speaking in his hometown of Nazareth. And, 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 and his fellow Jews rejected him. It specifically says in Mark 6, 6, that he marveled because of their unbelief. In other words, people had known Jesus all his life. People in his hometown, they saw that the way, the way that he lived for 30 years, that he never sinned, that they always heard gracious words from his lips. If anybody should trust Jesus, it should have been the people that knew him the best and saw how he lived. People who'd watched him lead that sinless life for 30 years and nothing. When he preached, nothing. And he was amazed. He was astounded at their unbelief. Well, this is the second time. And this time he marvels over actual belief by someone who's never met him, someone who's only heard of him, someone who is uncircumcised, someone who is a Gentile, someone who's a member of a pagan oppressor, somebody who's a part of an occupying force, somebody who's a member of a group not known for their humility or their sense of need and a stranger to the covenants, someone raised without the benefits of the Sabbath, without the benefits of the law, without the benefits of the sacrificial system, all of that, and he believes. And Jesus marvels. What caused this man to look away from everything he had to trust in in his life, and he had a lot, and to move toward Jesus as his only hope. We didn't even mention his wealth. Friends, both biblically and inexperienced, wealth is not a spiritual advantage. Wealth creates this world trust. Wealth creates this world attachments. We could, what, what would get him to look away from all that privilege and to look only to Jesus Christ? Only when he sees only Jesus. Only when he sees only Jesus. When he sees only Christ alone. Only when he sees that all of what he has and he has everything that the, this world could want is gone and there is only Jesus. You know, in the, uh, it, it, it's that way for so many of us. We got to a place in our lives where everything that we, we put our hope in, everything that, that was us, everything that was identity building, could be jobs, positions, people in our lives that we thought we were going to be permanently connected to and there's breakup in, 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 in family, whatever it might be, all of that gets taken away. And, and where, do you, where, where do you attach? Where do you find identity? Where do you find meaning? Where do you know that love, what is right and good and true and beautiful in a world where everything only shakes? What causes Jesus to marvel is when you actually look past all of that other stuff and see that you're maker, you see that you're friend, you see that you're Lord, you see that you're Savior, you receive that you're Redeemer and the lover of your soul. He is there and he's been waiting and he awaits. So the message of the miracle is receive him. And when you do, you get Jesus as your centurion. Think about that. Because here's, the, here's, the, here's what the miracle is really about. You and I are sick. You and I are sinners. 
We are sick, the Bible says, with sin. We are needy. We are the dying one. And Jesus is the mediator who calls out to his father for salvation and says, come and come by grace. Is this person worthy? Is David Rao worthy? Absolutely not. Come by grace alone. By faith alone. In Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord God, we marvel at the gospel because in some sense it's not about us so it can be for us. Are we good enough? Are we worthy enough? No. If we think we're worthy, immediately we're not. You are the Holy One. We can only come before you and know the worthy one in and through the only one who is and was Yesterday, today, tomorrow, the worthy one, the one sinless man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Lord, may we put our faith in him. In Jesus' name, amen.